This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. When you step back into the receptivity, you can also put in that light mental note of just naming to yourself silently what it is. And that labeling or noting or naming is can help mindfulness be accurately attuned to the experience you're being mindful of. Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you would like to support this podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. Good evening, everybody. I'm very happy to be here sitting in this seat. Today was a very strange kind of rough day for me, and knowing that I was going to be speaking with you tonight just really helped me stay in the practice a little more than I might have otherwise. So thank you for that. And uh, I really loved that Anam Tipton last night could just give his entire talk without any notes. And, you know, he can actually write his talk in his mind and having uh, studied in an oral tradition and me having studied in, you know, regular linear Western schools. I need my notes. Um, But I wanted to begin with just saying a few things that Um, it's really a generational difference. Like, I don't know, even maybe 25 or 20 years ago, to start a talk by talking about my present location would have been kind of odd. Um, But things have changed. Times are changing all the time. And so I want to name that I am a white Jewish cisgender woman and tell you just a little bit about my practice lineages. Um, uh, Because I really appreciated the question this morning uh, about that. Uh, And and also people have asked me, why are you a hybrid? Like, why did you practice Zen and then practice Vipassana insight meditation? And, And this question comes in the context of people wondering, like, 
can I jump around from tradition to tradition or practice to practice? And, you know, is that being a dilettante or how can I go deep? Do I need to focus on one tradition? So I thought I would just address that a little bit through telling you how I learned. And while I, my first teacher was uh, a Korean, had the title Zen master. Uh, he was head at that time of the Chogye order of monastics in South Korea. He actually came from North Korea, but um, during the war fled to South Korea. And I really loved him. His name was uh, Venerable Sung San, Desan Sanim, and uh, studied with him, met him in 1973, and uh, really studied with him just very diligently at the beginning of my practice. However, I also sat Vipassana retreats. In those days, the shortest retreat you could attend was two weeks, and the preference was three months. But I was a single mom, and I was um, working, and I was the sole breadwinner in our family. So I'll be really honest with you. I this is, it was not some deep spiritual choice. When I had time off work and childcare, I would look for a retreat because that's what I wanted to do with my spare time. If there was a Zen retreat, I sat Zen. If it was an insight meditation, Vipassana retreat, I went to that. So it's not a very um, thought through strategy spiritually, but it worked for me because I got to practice whenever I had the chance. So I actually practiced Zen for decades, uh, and I practiced with Sansanim, with uh, a Japanese Soto monk named Kobenchino Otagawa, and then met my heart teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi, when she moved to Cambridge from New York. And I practiced with her uh, exclusively for 11 years until she died. She died when she was 68. It was really sad. And I also practiced with um, Joshu Suzaki Roshi somewhat, maybe eight sessions, because uh, he was my, was my former husband, whom I call affectionately my husband. He was my husband's teacher uh, after Sansanim. But my long retreats I did in the context of the Theravada, the early Buddhist teachings, the um, we say Vipassana. Um, and by long retreats, I mean two months or three months at a time. And when my daughter, when I finished paying for college, I made a 10-year a practice vow, like I will sit two months out of every year and it took me 11 years to complete the vow. I can't remember one year. I just didn't get to do that. Um, I can't remember why. Um, and then there was also a time after um, my divorce from my husband that I went and did some Vajrayana practice with some Western teachers and then in, uh, went to a month-long Dzogchen retreat in the eastern mountain jungle in Bhutan, camping out um, in the mountains. And I really felt the beauty of Himalayan Buddhism being in those huge mountains. And my campsite was on this promontory, you know, um, just overlooking vast space and 
it gives you a whole other feeling for what the sky gazing practice can be. Um, so that it, it was a great joy, actually. I felt like I'm going to the modern day Nalanda University where all the traditions meet. And, and it was a great joy to discover that through these very different cultural forms, you could find the essential teachings of the Buddha. And it just, I don't know why, it made me so happy. So, um, so that is uh, sort of my history of lineages for those of you who want to know. And I'm deeply grateful. I mean, most of my, my Zen practice and, and the deepest of the Vajrayana practice that I did, which was just a little bit, um, it all came from Asian teachers. So I am just deeply grateful to, to all of my teachers, Asian and Western. So last night, uh, Anam Tipton told the story of, well, neither of us know how to pronounce it exactly correctly, Huan Yo. Um, this great Korean Zen teacher who lived in the 700s, long time ago. And he told about how he was... I have a slightly different version of it, which leads to a story of today, which I'll tell you later. Uh, So, of course, he was going... He wanted to go to China to learn the real Chan Dharma. Uh, Chan is what Zen was called in China. And Buddhism was brought to China by a legendary... Uh, person called Bodhidharma. And before Bodhidharma, in the 5th century, there were the teachings of Buddhism, but it was more philosophical in China. And then Bodhidharma brought the practice of, of Zazen, of sitting meditation, and sat for nine years in a cave. And if you see pictures of Bodhidharma calligraphies, he's always got these big, huge, staring eyes sort of bugging out of his head. And that's because he got really frustrated. I do not recommend this, by the way. He got really frustrated with falling asleep a lot in his cave. And so he ripped off his eyelids. Please don't do this. He ripped off his eyelids and he just threw them on the ground in disgust. And where he threw his eyelids magically sprouted tea bushes. And that's how monks got tea to keep them awake while they practice. I know, you really needed to know that for your practice. So he was traveling by foot, as people did in those days. And just as Anam Tukdun was saying, he got really tired and he finally just couldn't go any further and he just laid down to sleep. And of course, yes, it happened to be in a cemetery. And in those days... um, I, I don't know if bodies were burned, but there were you know leftover bones and things. But he was too tired, and he didn't see that. Um, so he just went to sleep, and he woke up in the night really parched and thirsty. And you know how it is when you're kind of half asleep, and maybe you're too cold to even pull your blanket up, <laughs> but 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 it's there. And anyway, he was in that kind of half asleep state. And he was so, so thirsty, and he kind of reached around, and he found what seemed like a bowl of water, right? And he took a drink. It was so cool, and he felt so refreshed, and <sighs> went back to sleep. 
And then, as Adam took to explain, in the morning, he looked at the, he saw the bowl was actually a piece of skull and there were these bits of tissue in it and maggots in it. And when he saw that, he got so sick to his stomach, just at this wave of nausea and he vomited. And when that happened, um, when he had that visceral reaction to what it was that he had been drinking, being, of course, already an accomplished practitioner and teacher, he reflected on what had happened. And he had, as Aram Tupton said, this complete awakening. He had a moment of great insight. And he realized it was his thinking. It was his thinking that determined. He said it's, it, it was his thinking that made the experience good or bad. Sounds like Hamlet, right? Um, and he realized that when he didn't know what it was, it tasted delicious. And when he knew what it was, it was repulsive. It just was gross and disgusting to him. And what he actually said in that moment was, thinking makes good and bad, life and death. Without thinking... There's no universe, no Buddha, no Dharma. What he means is without these concepts about them, (laughs) there's just this oneness of experience. In other words, you know, uh, no separation between me over here and my experience over there, just being that close and intimate with it um, and understanding that in it, in and of itself, it's empty. And that means it isn't good or bad intrinsically. It's what we bring to the experience that makes it like that for us. And when he saw that, of course, he didn't have to then keep seeking. And so he went back home, became an even greater teacher, very great teacher. And I have not had the... um, pleasure of visiting the places where he was and where he taught. So I was really happy to hear you tell about that last night. Thank you. Um, And this is a quote from his teaching. It's called Cultivating the Determination to Practice. And that's part of what we're doing here together, right, is cultivating the, the the determination to practice and to keep going with the practice. So he said, however well you practice meditation, without moral discipline, you'll be like somebody who is shown the way to a treasure house, but never goes there. And he's saying that without ethics, without sila, without that foundation of our practice of goodness or virtue, um, that we're going to be like somebody who's shown the treasure and doesn't bother to go get it. Or, um, you know, somebody, he says, however well you may endure austerities, like however long you sit into the night, however long you sit through all the pain in your legs, you know, however long you do that, Without wisdom, you'll be like a person who goes east. No. Who intends to go east and heads west. 
In other words, if you don't have the ethical underpinnings of the practice, then we're like somebody who wants to go to the beach but heads for the hills instead. And so this is why we remind ourselves how deeply intertwined our lives are and why we take those mindfulness trainings as a kind of... um, like a container, you know, just something that uh, holds our community and guides us so that we can live harmoniously here. So I want my talk to also be sensible, practical, and applicable. Thank you. And so I want to talk about how to work with what arises when you're sitting in retreat. And I want to do that by talking about the backward step. This is a teaching from a 13th century Zen master named Dogen Zenji. And you've been practicing it each time that um, when I've, you know, in the guided meditation, when I've suggested that you just shift your body back a little bit. And if you've done that, maybe you can sense, I can often sense a subtle feeling of relaxation um, just just a little relaxation when I do that, because maybe unconsciously I wasn't aware that I was like tipping forward and anticipating the next experience. And so then that shift back into just receiving the moment. Ah, there's something deeply relaxing about it. And I've taught it physically because that's, that's part of how I practice, my own practice. He didn't talk about doing it physically with your body, but what he said, um, he said, you should cease from practice based on intellectual understanding. You know, that's all the books by your nightstand, all the Dharma books that you read when maybe um, you could be meditating. Um, I've certainly done that at night when I'm tired. Pursuing words and following after speech, learn the backward step that turns your light inward to illuminate yourself. And so what he's talking about there, and there's another phrase that he uses. um, He says, when the self advances toward all the myriad things, all the phenomena in the world, when we go toward things, or each other for that matter, we, we have this, the self means our agenda for what we want from experience. Um, the agenda that we bring to whatever we do, whether it's just simply what we want to get out of it or whether we have other agendas um, for ex- what we want to get out of experience. He's saying when we go forward like that, um, it's delusion. It's, it's not just pure experience. We're going forward with these sort of deluded ideas of what we're going to be able to do for ourselves with the experience. And then he says, but when the myriad things come forward and they illuminate you, they come forward and you receive them. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. When they come forward and you, you let them in, that's awakening. Then what 
whatever the ingredients are of this moment are the ingredients of waking up when we receive them in awareness like that. He's really talking about stepping back into awareness. And you've been doing this already. You actually have been doing this. Um, one, of my, one of the stories Jack tells about this that I like is from Achan Chah, a very quickly story about the monks um, were going on alms round. And I guess they passed some huge rock, like spirit rock here. If you've seen the big rock that actually is spirit rock, what the um, indigenous people called this land. So there was some huge boulder. And he said, do you see that boulder? And of course, everybody said yes. And then he said, do you think it's heavy? And they said, yes. And then he said, well, not if you don't pick it up. So it's like that with a lot of our experience, right? What we, we think it's going to be hard or we think it's going to be easy. Or, but yeah, what if we don't even pick it up? So you imagine you're in some train of thought, maybe a reverie, maybe you're walking and you realize you've been lost in thought. Just suddenly... A moment of mindfulness strikes and you realize, oh, I've been lost in thought. And then looking around, you notice, oh, I've been walking without noticing a thing around me. Uh, I haven't noticed the clouds, the beautiful colors of clouds that we had today. Coming from up north, I haven't noticed the stillness in the air. One definition of nirvana is no wind. It's been very still. Haven't noticed my thoughts as they rose and passed away. I have not been present, right? You notice that. And then um, in your newly awakened state, when you're mindful about this, you realize, okay, the thoughts, they're still present. They're still going on. They're still appearing and disappearing, arising and passing away, floating through. But now you're aware. You're aware of them. You're aware of your feelings and emotions. And, you know, we call it the mind stream. You're aware of that flow of thoughts and feelings. It's just always flowing along. Except now you step back and it's like sitting on the banks of the stream and observing it all flow by. And you're still walking, you're still doing the practice that you were doing, but you have actually taken the backward step. It's really that simple, except it's not simple to remember to do it when we're lost in thought. Um, and Dogen is not suggesting that we try to remain forever in a state of just pure receptive being. That was a meditation instruction. Um, he's just urging us to live whatever is happening fully, to just immerse and absorb ourselves in it. And to, when we step back into that awareness, it's like just an overall willingness to let life in, to receive the moment. And, uh, and it's amazing, you know, it's, it's not just uh, 
you might feel, oh, this is kind of spacey to just step back into awareness, but you're also able to be aware in a very granular way of, you know, the arising and passing of a breath. We study the birth and death of experience in our meditation, how things appear and disappear, sensations, the play of sensation. Um, Just, it can be very specific and particular as well as holding that vast space of awareness where everything is taking place. And it, it just, it reminds me, this has to do with the effort, the question that you asked this morning about wise effort. You know, when do you push through your resistance and when do you respect it? And trying to find that balance between too tight and too loose and too hard and too, I don't know, too relaxed. If there's any such thing, I guess there is. And it reminded me of when... Um, when Jack and I first started falling in love or dating, whatever you call it at this age, um, he said we were dating. He told our team what we were teaching the month long. I'm dating Trudy. I said later, Jack, I haven't seen any dinners or walks on the beach or movies. Or, you know, if you're dating me, you actually have to take me on dates. Well, he is such a quick study that on our next day off, we would get one day off when we we're teaching the long, long retreat. He took me to Sonoma to dinner and a movie. So um, that was great. But he had fears because he was just emerging from a long 30-year marriage. I had already been divorced for 10 years. So I was, you know, kind of raring to go. I thought he was just so great. And we'd been teaching together for years. And I had known him since we were in our 20s. So I felt safe. I had had more than one husband. And I felt like, oh, I know this man already. He's going to be so wonderful and never betray me. And Meanwhile, he was getting more and more nervous as I would voice my joy and subtle expectations of how marvelous this was all going to be. And, you know, he just said, I don't think I can make this commitment. And I was really clear. I didn't know if I wanted to get married again. I'd already, I'm not going to go into that um, more than once. And so... I just said, you know, what I want, the commitment that I want from you is that you be present with me when you're with me. That's really all I want. Because I knew, I had the confidence (laughs) that when we're completely present with experience, what happens? You know, it's, it's usually when we're able to be completely present with experience, it's wonderful. It's magical. You know, Zen Master Rinzai echoed Anamtutan's teaching of last night about the sacredness of life and magic of awareness. And he said, there is nothing that is not sacred. There is nothing that is not profound. When we're fully present like that, I mean, you've seen it. You've even only two, okay, it's only two days into the retreat. If you haven't seen it yet, you will. You'll notice a lizard has emerged because there was a patch of sunlight today. And that lizard is just the most magnificent manifestation of the diversity of nature. (laughs) You love that lizard, right? 
So anyway, it was definitely the right thing because here we are. We did get married and we're really happy about it. Um, But to come back to the retreat, sensible, practical, applicable, (laughs) what kinds of things are arising? They fall into usually three categories, pleasant things, unpleasant things, or neither, no take it or leave it kinds of things that we usually leave, we usually ignore. Although those moments of so-called neutral experience are usually, when we can notice them, pretty peaceful moments. They're they're actually little doorways into equanimity moments, Um, little equanimity quickies. Um, So yes, we have physical ease and discomfort, emotions and thoughts and worries and anxieties and doubting mind and wanting things to be different and judging mind. I mean, we can even be noticing and aware and judge ourselves for what we're noticing. I mean, it can just be an infinite regress of judgment. and So we notice, we feel all that. These are the things that arise. And... I really feel that a great way to work with them is through this backward step. And that, because when, when you step back into the receptivity, you can also put in that light mental note of just naming to yourself silently what it is. And that labeling or noting or naming is, can help mindfulness be accurately attuned to the experience you're being mindful of. Um, doesn't really work if you're not attuned to it, but it can really help to use to use that. Um, it it can help do what Dan Siegel calls it, expanding your window of tolerance, so that you can be present with more and more different kinds of experience. And usually, the experiences we think we need to learn to be more present with are the unpleasant ones because they're harder to bear. But honestly, the pleasant ones can just take us away because they're pleasant. We don't have the motivation to kind of try to stop being lost in them because they feel good. Um, I'm trying to remember, Anam Tupton, maybe in your next talk, you told a wonderful story about that, which maybe it'll occur to me later, but um, see if I can remember it. I mean, I loved that story. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com Slash be here now. I'm probably going to butcher the story, but I'm going to tell it a little bit, and then you can expand on it and tell the right way later. 
Um, but it's about a great yogi. I don't know if it was Milarepa who it was, but it was some great yogi who was in retreat. Maybe it was just a nameless great practitioner who was in retreat and given the instruction, you know, to go do this solo retreat in a cave up in the Himalayas and and then would come back, I guess, maybe once a year to check in with the teacher. Remember, people didn't have like, you know, Teslas and things. They had to walk. So you didn't get to see your teacher that often. And uh, I wish I hadn't embarked on this. (laughs) You know what? I'm going to stop. And maybe it'll come back to me later. But it's the one where he goes back and tells the teacher that, um, you know, he was really noticing all these demons and it was so great. And then... um, He goes back and practices, and then this amazing vision of a beautiful bodhisattva appears and offers him some gift, and he goes back and tells the teacher, and then this beautiful bodhisattva came and offered me this gift. If it was Upantita, the teacher would have said, and did you note it? Um, But that was the point of the story. He got lost in it. Oh, I hope you'll make it right. Thank you. I'm trying to talk about ways to stabilize your mindfulness and that sometimes it's easier actually to be mindful when it's painful or unpleasant than when it's very pleasant. And, you know, one of the things that the Buddha did to help himself stabilize his mindfulness is he would see whatever temptation it was that arose, the form, um, there was a, the form of these temptations and distractions uh, was uh, an entity called Mara, who we would think of as maybe the devil. And so he would say, I see you, Mara. You know, I see you. I see you are trying to get me to stand up from my cushion before the sitting is over. I see you are trying. Anyway, you're allowed to stand up, by the way. But you're supposed to stand up behind your cushion and meditate, not leave the hall. Um, you're supposed to keep going. Um, and another way to step back from experience is simply to notice and make that note of whether something is pleasant or unpleasant or just neutral. I have found that very helpful in retreat when, let's say I brought a really big chocolate bar with me into the retreat and I would take a bite of it and depending on what your substance is, for me, it's chocolate. I just, it's just like an ecstatic state. And I, of course, it's so pleasant. I would want another bite and then another and another. But if you make that note, when I would make that note, oh, pleasant, pleasant, it just bought me enough time, enough space to be mindful of, maybe I want to save the rest of the bar, not eat it all at once. Um, You know, I was the oldest, so I knew how to save my Halloween candy. When my brother and sister would just eat theirs all at once because they were littler, it was a great feeling of power. Um, But but noticing Vedana, which is that felt sense, that quality, the flavor of experience, whether it's a pleasant flavor or an unpleasant flavor, noticing it and noting it can actually really help. And... 
um, because what happens is we reach for more of the pleasant, more of the metaphorical chocolate, and we want to avoid or get aggressive and push away whatever is unpleasant. That's just how we're wired. It happens automatically. It's not being a bad practitioner. Um, it's just a way that we get caught. And so stepping back by making that light mental note is a way to um, have a little more, since we can't control the experiences that arise, you've noticed this by now, and we can't control whether they're going to be pleasant or unpleasant, but what we can do is notice them, be mindful of them, and step back into being simply present with them. So uh, I want to take this a little deeper, but before I do, I want to tell you um, my story of today. This is kind of like um, my Wanyo story, except it didn't lead to amazing enlightenment. Um, but it's, it's a simple story, even though it's not like a huge enlightenment story. So when I arrived here, uh, at the beginning, when we all arrived for this retreat, I hadn't been here for years, and I was so happy to be here. And I got into my room, and I flopped down on the bed, and Jack had brought me, and I said, oh, I wish this was the one-month retreat. I just was so happy. I want, already I was greedy for more, and we hadn't even begun. So... That was that feeling, right? And then last night I had a very restless, not good sleep. And just, I don't know why, I just could not really sleep well. And I felt itchy. I worried maybe I had got, you know, the nighttime worries. Maybe I got in some poison oak and it's just starting now and it's going to be a horrible retreat because I'll be covered with poison oak. Um, but I went. You know, he's dozing on and off. Um, and then I woke up really early and I had this thought, oh, good, I can go to the early morning sit. And then, you know how you just snuggle a little longer in your bed? And I was comfy and cozy in the bed, but something was off. And I stood up and I threw off the covers and <clears throat> I went to the bathroom and I came back and I looked at the bed. It was full of ants, full of ants. I'm not talking a few little ants crawling in the bed. It was full of ants. I didn't throw up, <laughs> but it was really creepy. And I'm not proud of what I did next, which was I very quickly started to, you know, sweep them off the sheets. And then I realized two things. First of all, there are way more of them than me way more than my arm can handle. And I also had crushed a few of them. And these are very teeny, they don't bite. They're teeny tiny ants who are quite innocent, just being ants. And I don't know why they came. I just want to tell you that never in all my time at Spirit Rock, and the manager said the same thing, has anybody ever woken up in a bed of ants? So this is not going to happen to you. I tried to tell myself I must be so sweet. Uh, why did they come into my bed? I certainly was not eating in the bed. There were no crumbs in the bed, um, but there they were. And 
I suddenly thought, I don't want to be here. <laughs> and I don't want to sleep here anymore. And um, I kind of want to go home, except that I've moved and I don't really have a home right now. But I could go back to Jack's. So I thought, so I, and then there was my Wanyo moment of, wow, I really was happy. And now I'm not. I really loved snuggling in that bed. And now it looks terrifying to me. <laughs> I couldn't come down to the sit because I was convinced they were all in my hair. Um, and I had to take care of all the creepy crawlies. Um, but I can tell you at a moment like that, when you're practicing and you've learned how to be mindful of your experience and the importance of being aware of what's going on, you notice the queasy, creepy, crawly. I mean, it's very vivid. That's one thing about retreat. It amplifies the experiences that you're having. Keep that in mind, by the way. <laughs> they, you know, they're amplified because we're not distracting ourselves at all. And of course, this is a metaphor too for things that might have looked good to you and then turned out to not be so good or a person who might have looked really good to you and then you find out more about them or they, do, they say something weird or they pick their nose or they just sort of like, I don't know anymore about you. Um, just that queasy feeling that comes. And when we're practicing, one of the benefits is that we can see the whole process unfold. You know, we can just observe it. We can be the witness of it. And... We can see how there's the pleasantness of snuggling in your covers. And then there's the sort of repulsiveness of snuggling in a bed of many, many, many insects. Um, ants are insects, right? Yes, they're insects. And so the unpleasantness of discovering the true nature of my covers um, repelled me. And some experiences... They do that. They repel us. And we can just see those movements toward and away from experience. And when we see those movements toward and away from experience, liking and disliking, um, and how it colors our awareness, it colors our thinking, we're transformed by being able to step back and do this. This is a transformation of consciousness. I'm going to talk more about that in my next talk. But we are magically, inevitably, and continuously transformed by this practice. I mean, we're told that we're transforming anyway all the time, that all the cells in our bodies replenish some crazy thing every seven days or something. But that's not something I can feel and observe. But I can feel and observe. You can feel and observe yourself being um, transformed here. And all of the liking, the disliking, the pleasure, the pain, the happiness, the joy, the sorrow all these movements of the mind and heart, um, how do they transform? And then where are the places where we can't really sustain our presence or mindfulness with the ups and downs of what's happening? You know, you can be mindful of this and mindful of that and mindful of the next thing, 
And then there's this thing, whether it doesn't have to be as dramatic as ants in your bed, but there's just something that catches us and we lose that ability to be aware of it and we're just lost in it. And then the identification begins. What is it about me? Why me? Blah, 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 blah. And that fixation that overwhelms our capacity, um, well, that was that first reflex, right, of sweeping these tiny little innocent beings out of the bed until I realized I was just being aggressive with them. Um, So the Buddha wrote a text where, well, he didn't write it, he spoke it. It was an oral tradition, and it was memorized by memorizing monks. The Buddha had groups of memorizing monks because he saw what happened in the Jain tradition, where their great teacher, Mahavira, who was like their Buddha, uh, when he died, people started fighting over what he had taught. He said this, no, he said that, no, he said it this way. They got into all kinds of arguments and conflicts and And the Buddha thought, I don't want this to happen in my community after I'm gone. So he thought, I want people to have a record of my teachings. So in those days, it was orally done. So he had these memorizing monks who would remember the teachings. And then the idea was that everybody would get together and compare their notes. And more or less, that is how the Pali Canon got um, created. And... Pali was sort of like the street Sanskrit that people spoke. Sanskrit was the scholarly language. And the Buddha was really clear that he did not want his um, monastics, the members of his community, teaching in any language that everybody couldn't understand. I really love that part. He wanted people to teach in the vernacular and adapt to who who was listening. And in this text, he said, this one text, he said, this is what I learned and this is what benefited me from my practice. This is how I was transformed by it. And this is a place where I might still be caught. Isn't that a beautiful reflection? So humble. And we can, you know, we can look at this. How are we being transformed by the practice and where are we caught? or still feeling caught if you've been practicing for many years. And he said, these are the places that might still be asking to be freed. So these are the places in us, instead of despairing, just looking at them as almost like beings, you know, asking to be freed. And being freed means what? Stepping back being able to let them appear and let them in without letting them, without um, it becoming our whole identity. And that's where we go deeper into the practice. And I had said to James, I can't imagine speaking for a whole hour. He said, well, we speak for an hour here and I've almost made it. I'm really happy about that. Um, because James is our fearless leader. And you know how you always want to please your leaders? Um, You want their approval. So I expect it later, James, that I will have your approval. Um, So just for a moment, 
I'm almost done, to take it deeper. You know, that's where we notice the shift in identity. Like when I'm lost in my pain or my doubt or my revulsion at the poor little ants, I feel terrible, right? And I feel like I'm, I could go into a whole story about being a bad practitioner and, oh, you don't deserve to sit on the teacher's seat and rah, 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 rah. Um, but with the backward step, I shift from, you shift from, we shift from, I, that kind of identifying with experience and making it a story about how good we are, how bad we are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, making it a story about ourselves. We shift from that into just that spacious awareness that is open and doesn't have to get caught in judgments and can just say, this is what it's like to be a human being who is experiencing revulsion. Now I am connected to every human on the planet who has ever had that queasy feeling of discovering something that you liked is not what it appeared to be and of wishing it was different. Um, So that's the expansion of Vedna, which is really about the freedom to know how we feel in any given moment. It's a freedom to know how we feel. And it's late spring here, time for spring cleaning the mind and heart. You know, we're like taking the, I don't know, the brain carpets outside and kind of shaking them out, getting all the dust out, the dust of anxiety and nervousness and shakiness, all those um, unconfident feelings and knowing how we feel and respecting our life and our life experiences. And so... um, This is most of what I really want to share with you this evening. Um, You know that meditation isn't just to get what we want. It's a container for learning about ourselves and about this life that we find ourselves in. And it's a container that can help us through these experiences of the retreat, the ups and downs of retreat, the ups and downs of our lives outside of retreat, and the fact that our lives will end. You know, just think 50 years from now, well, I don't know how old you are. Some of you are young enough to still be here, (laughs) but it's certainly not going to be the same group. (laughs) Um, It just amazes me sometimes that everybody who existed disappeared. It's amazing. Uh, anyway, that's another reason to, um, to practice being present and to, be, and to free our hearts as much as we can. And, and this is what noticing and mindfulness and seeing and awareness and infusing it with some love and compassion uh, I wasn't in the hall, but I did listen to Anam Tipton's beautiful heart practice today. It's what allows us to bring that tremendous compassion to ourselves, to each other. And, and then when we have the capacity to be with our own suffering with a more steady presence, what happens 
is that we actually can help other people with that steady presence. We can be with them through the ups and downs of their lives when we're called to do that. And so freeing our hearts, it's a blessing, not just for ourselves, but for our world. And I just want to offer a very deep bow to all of you for being engaged in doing this together and and helping me and we're helping each other here. So thank you so much for your attention and listening. And it was almost an hour. So uh, usually we sit for a moment after the talk. We just take a moment to kind of resonate or absorb the teaching that we've heard. Let's actually sit for a few minutes. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.